You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. So how would you finish this sentence? The reason Jesus came was to blank. If someone came up to you and said, why did Jesus come? What answer would you give them? Maybe some think that it was to start a political ideology. Maybe he came to start and create a humanitarian movement. Maybe he came to improve on the Jewish religion. It was good but not great and so Jesus came to make it better. Was it to become a celebrity preacher, to gain an influence, to become an influencer? Was it to heal people? Was that the primary goal of his mission? And maybe for some of you, you say, well, I don't, I don't know that, that there really was a clearly defined mission. Maybe life just sort of happened to Jesus. Circumstances were such that in the end, he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And he suffered under the hand of the Roman Empire. See, the answer to that question, why did Jesus come, is getting at the very mission of Jesus. It's answering his question of why. Why did he come? What was driving him in everything that he did? These questions of why go deeper. They they go deeper than questions of how and certainly deeper than questions of what. Jesus certainly had a what to his ministry. There are things that he did. He certainly had a methodology. There, were, there, there was a way that he went about his ministry. But before we can get to those questions, we need to answer why. It's fundamental. A person's why provides the foundational purpose, mission, and vision that drives everything that we do. Several years ago, I read a book called Start With Why by Simon Sinek. He's got one of the most popular TED Talk videos of all time. It has like tens of millions of views. It may even be more than that. This is the last time I saw it. He's got a whole book on finding your why. It's a great book. In it, he writes this. Every leader in company knows the what. They can describe their products, their industry, and their competitors. Some companies also know how they do what they do. Their unique differentiators, their value proposition, and their values. But few companies know or articulate their why, their purpose, their cause, or their belief. The why is their reason for being, and the why is why anyone should care. So what was Jesus' why? What was his mission See, for, for a person like Jesus, who's arguably one of the most influential people of all time, many people speculate about Jesus and his purpose. Some say he was, he was just a good teacher and his purpose was to show people a better way to live. Some say he was a religious fanatic and died a tragic death under the heavy hand of the Roman Empire. And really his followers kind of uh, turned him into this martyr and created what we know today as Christianity. And still others say, listen, it's, it's up to each person to decide. You get to decide Jesus' why. You decide who Jesus is to you, and, and then you define what his mission was really all about. But the good news is the Bible loves us too much to leave a question that big open to speculation. In fact, the, the Bible is very clear on uh, his why. In fact, Jesus himself is clear on his why. He's going to tell us why he came. And we're going to do something a little different today. We're going to jump to the very end of our passage today. It was the last verse that Pastor Kevin read. And it's his mission statement. And we have it in Luke 19.10. So if anyone ever asks you, why did Jesus come? You could just give him or her Jesus' words. Here it is. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. It's compelling. It's pithy. It's memorable. You can memorize that today. For the Son of Man came... To seek and save the lost. Now that title, the Son of Man, is a throwback reference from the Old Testament. It happens to be Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself. It was this title 
pointing forward to the one who would come and bring peace and wholeness back to a broken world. In other words, the Son of Man was the one who would come to seek and save the lost. This mission statement that Jesus gives comes at the end of Jesus passing through Jericho and he's actually on his way to Jerusalem for the last time. This is that point in Luke's gospel where, his, where Luke tells us that his face was set on Jerusalem, meaning his face was set on going to the cross. And very soon, in just a chapter, he's going to be in Jerusalem. You'll see the triumphal entry as, as, the, as the events of the Holy Week unfold. And on this trip, he meets two men. And these two men are never the same afterward. And what's amazing is that in one sense, these two guys are polar opposites. They, they, they would have no reason to ever be friends. There's nothing that would ever bring these two guys together. In other words, they have nothing in common except their need for Jesus. Seeking and saving the lost, friends, is the why that drives the life and mission of Jesus. And I wanted to go ahead and put it at the very beginning of today's sermon so that as we work our way through it, you see it at every level. And as we work our way through the story, as Jesus makes his way through Jericho and meets these two men, we will see this mission on display. And a lot of times these two uh, stories are dealt with separately, but it's really one event. Jesus and his time in Jericho and the two men that he meets. In fact, if you read through Luke's gospel, he often does this. He pairs two people together in one story so that you see the, the, the way that Jesus uh, meets everybody. It's like a mini drama of the entire mission of Jesus in one episode. And in each case, as we see each person, we're going to see that his mission to seek and save the lost has an intentional pursuit, a compassionate presence, and a redeeming power. That little outline of intentional pursuit, compassionate presence, and redeeming power is going to happen in both of these lives. So let's begin in chapter 18. As we see that Jesus' mission is to seek and save the lost as he meets a blind beggar. Luke 18, verse 35. As Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. So let me unpack this there's a lot of details here he's on his way to Jerusalem and he's passing through Jericho and we're introduced to a blind man who's outside of the city walls sitting by the roadside and he's been reduced to a life of begging now you need to remember this is the ancient world there is no Americans with Disabilities Act there are no protections for this person this is the ancient world if you're blind or have some other congenital disability, or if life happens to you and you become disabled, people just generally assume that it's because of some kind of sin. They go, listen, you must have done something terrible, or your parents did something terrible, and this is God's way of retribution. You're, kind of, you're, you're getting what you or your family deserve. And so this man is outside of the city, outside of the protection of the city walls, doing the only thing that he can do to earn any kind of living. And he's been reduced to the daily grind of begging for money. There is no system in the ancient world for collecting disability. In fact, in the ancient world, when, when, when Christianity started to become popular... And, and Christians were um, impacted by the love of Jesus Christ. It compelled Christians to care for the poor. And the ancient world thought it was insane. Why would you care for the poor? Why would you give out of your own livelihood to help people who have been cursed by the gods? Now it's interesting, 2,000 years later, we, we kind of take that for granted. We think what, part of what it means to be a good person is to take care of the poor. That idea you can thank Christianity for. The only reason that is ubiquitous amongst people today is because Christians took an unpopular idea and made it popular. This man has... No system for, 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 for being helped. There's no subsidized housing in the ancient world. There is no relief for the poor. Now what do you think it does to a person to have to beg day in 
and day out. I mean, this is New England. We don't, even, we don't like to ask for help for anything, right? This guy, every single day that he's going to get a meal, it's because he's begged for it. What do you think it does to your soul? Day in, day out, people are stepping over you or stepping around you because they just don't want to make eye contact with you because they can't stomach giving you another penny. Think of what happens to the soul with that kind of compounded detriment day in and day out. What do you think it does to a person's sense of worth and value? Meanwhile, all of this is taking place outside of the protection and security of the walls of the city. You can be robbed. You can be mugged. You can be murdered. Think about he gets a couple of denarii and then he's mugged and it's stolen and taken away. Maybe he's outside because he's tired of the ridicule. Maybe he's outside because he's tired of those judging eyes. I know he's blind, but you don't need sight to feel the judgment and contempt that people have for you when you're begging. Maybe he's outside of the city walls because he's no longer welcome on the streets of Jericho. It also begs the question, where's his family? If you were going to have any kind of support in the ancient world with a disability, it's because your family took care of you. This man has no one. Perhaps they've disowned him because they want to get the shame of his disability far away from them. Maybe they've passed away. Either way, here's what we know. This man is utterly alone. And we don't even know his name. He's just referred to as the blind beggar. And I think that's intentional. I think, the, I think Luke is writing it in such a way so that we see the shame of being reduced his abil- to his disability, reduced to his blindness and begging has taken a toll on this man. You see, you beg for so long because you have nothing. After a while, that internal dialogue of I have nothing changes to I am nothing. I don't even have a name. This man is in every way oppressed. He's oppressed physically, can't see. Economically, he has no money. Socially, he's all alone. Psychologically, just what that does to you. So spiritually, he's cut off from being able to worship the Lord. He can't get to the synagogue. He can't get to the temple. He is cut off from everything. And I have slowed down, taken this one verse and expanded on it because I need us to see him this morning. Do you see him? Do you feel his pain? Do you feel his need? Do you feel his lostness? Verse 36. Hearing a crowd going by, the blind man inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. So you can imagine as Jesus is drawing near to the city, a crowd starts to gather. And the blind man's not deaf, so he hears the commotion. But since he can't see what's going on, he asks the crowd, hey, what's going on? What's happening? Why are people gathering? See, in the ancient world, when an important person was coming to your city, people would gather outside of the city walls and they would, they would greet them. They would, and then they would, there would be this, this welcome party escorting them into the city. And generally that welcome party would give way to a great banquet. And then they would find the best house in the city for him to stay the night. That was typical in the ancient world. And then in verse 38, we see this. The blind man cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front in the crowd, they began to rebuke him, telling him to be silent. But the blind man cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. See, this blind man heard that Jesus was coming and he does not want to waste his opportunity. And he cries out to Jesus for mercy and he begs, but this time not for money. He begs for mercy. Can you hear the desperation in his voice? And some in the crowd hear him. They rebuke him. They tell him to shut up. See, they're all out there trying to make an impression on Jesus. 
And they've got this man hidden behind them. And they don't want Jesus to see they're crippled and they're lame. They don't want Jesus to think that they have any brokenness around them. They don't want Jesus to see the one that they've spent their whole lives trying to avoid. Talk about kicking a guy when he's down. And I love this. He doesn't care. He doesn't care that they're telling him to shut up. He doesn't care that they're rebuking him. This is his chance. This is his one shot to make some kind of connection with Jesus. And I've often wondered why. Why would he do that? You see, it must be that word about Jesus has come to him. Even this man on the fringe, even this man on the outskirts of the city has heard about Jesus. Maybe as people are coming into the city, he's heard glimpses of the stories. He's heard glimpses and and heard chatter about Jesus. This son of man who can bring wholeness to our emptiness and restoration to the broken, sight to the blind. And he is not going to miss his opportunity. And so he cries out all the more. Verse 40. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And the man said, Lord, let me recover my sight. Jesus stops. He hears his cry and he commands the crowd to bring the beggar to him. Now, do you remember that mission purpose statement of Jesus that Jesus has come to seek and save the lost? By any definition, Whatever definition you could come up with what it means to be lost, this man fits that definition. I mean, to be lost is to be misplaced. It's to be vulnerable. It's to be without hope. hope. And there is a wholeness and peace missing in this man's life. There's so much lostness there. And Jesus says, bring him to me. Now think about this scene so far as it relates to the mission of Jesus to seek and save the lost. First, I want you to see the intentional pursuit of Jesus here. Jesus stops what he's doing. I mean, clearly, he's got a job to do. He's on his way to Jerusalem. Some might say that's the most important thing Jesus has going on in his life. And yet he stops what he's doing. He's willing to be interrupted and to pursue this man. And there's an obstacle to him, right? The crowd. The crowd is blocking Jesus from him. See, they should have brought this man to Jesus. For whatever they know about Jesus, they should have said, Jesus, what we've heard is that you can restore brokenness. And we've had, there's a broken man in our community. And we want to bring him to you. But instead, they're trying to hide him. They should have advocated for him. They should have pleaded for Jesus to heal this man. And yet they want to look like they have it all together. And so Jesus commands the crowd to get out of the way and bring them to him. See, the crowd is marginalizing the man. And in contrast, Jesus is drawing him near. And then Jesus asks him a direct, intentional question. I want us to see that Jesus is intentional. He's direct. He is pursuing. He doesn't leave his mission to whimsical chance. I think Jesus was the most intentional person who has ever lived. He seeks out lostness in order to do something about it. But not only does Jesus' mission have an intentional pursuit, it also has a compassionate presence. Do you see what's going on here? He could have, Jesus is so powerful. We see this before, we've seen this in his life before. He, he could have uh, just kept on going on his way through Jericho, on his way to Jerusalem, not even broken his stride and just done a drive-by healing, right? Jesus can speak the, the waves to stop. He can command life. He's healed people. He's brought back people from the dead from a distance, not even in the same city. And yet Jesus stops and he has a conversation with this man. I've often wondered, when was the last time someone stopped and had a conversation with him? Jesus asks him what he needs. Now, Jesus isn't stupid. He knows what he needs. He knows that at the core of his lostness and brokenness is his need to recover his sight. So it's not an informational question. 
He doesn't need to know what he needs. He knows that this man longs to see. I think Jesus is just giving him the gift of human interaction. There's just something dignifying about having a conversation with someone who's been so on the margin, on the fringe, on the outside of society. I mean, when was the, someone, when's the last time someone just looked at this man without contempt and just talked to him? Jesus doesn't ask him what he wants because he doesn't know. He asks him what he wants to give him the gift of his presence. To give him the gift of his presence. And not only does Jesus pursue the man with intentionality and unhurried, compassionate presence, we'll also see that he ha- his mission has redeeming power. Look what happens next in verse 42. Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately the blind man recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Jesus tells us what we can't see, that this blind man has faith. It's not merely just a, a, an act of mercy, which, which it is. It's, it's, it's a response to this man's faith. This man has faith that Jesus is both compassionate to care about him, but also powerful enough to do something about it. Jesus has the power to heal this man's blindness, and in doing so, that which is lost is found. This story is a picture of the parables in Luke 15. Luke 15, we see all the parables of the lost things. You have the lost sheep, the lost coins, the lost sons. Now we have a lost man. And what we learn about in the parables in principle, we see played out in this picture of when, when, when lost are found. This blind man recovers his sight, but he also gains so much more. Think about the holistic change going on in his life. Now he can work for a living. He can rejoin society within the city walls. He can begin that process of healing from a lifetime of being outcast, hurt, and oppressed. And what is the very first thing this man sees when he recovers his sight? It's Jesus. Jesus is standing right there. He's having a conversation with him. Jesus recovers his sight. And as he opens his eyes... He sees Jesus. And with his new sight, this man sees him and he begins to glorify God. All the while, the crowd is watching this scene unfold. If you remember the crowd, they wanted to hush and silence this blind man. Now we've seen a change in them. Now they're joining him in praise. This man has been transformed by the pursuit and presence and power of Jesus who seeks and saves the lost. And in the, in the Gospel of Luke, as you read through it, you'll see there's lots of healings. But I, but I want you to see that these healings and miracles are never truncated, meaning they're not cut off. It's not merely that Jesus heals someone physically and that's it. He, he always brings holistic healing. So they're healed physically, but there's also a spiritual healing that takes place. See, before Jesus, this man was disconnected from God, but now having met Jesus... We see him glorifying God. And don't miss this. The Bible says that he started to follow Jesus. That's Luke's code word for he became a disciple of Jesus. He started to follow him. See, when we first meet this man, he's hopeless. He's sitting. He's begging. And now what do we see? He's rejoicing, following Jesus, and glorifying God. The blind man was down and out. He was oppressed in every way. But Jesus sought him and saved him with an intentional pursuit, compassionate presence, and a redeeming power. That's the story of the blind, oppressed man. And now Luke turns in the story to tell us of another man. And we'll find out that he can't see either. But his blindness has a different cause. Look with me at Luke 19. Verse 1. Luke keeps going. He says, Jesus entered Jericho. He was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Again, Luke puts a lot of details in a short sentence. Let me unpack this so we don't miss the irony that's going on here. If you don't know this, names are very important in the Bible. So when you see a name, it's a good question to ask, well, what does that name mean? Because they carry weight and meaning. 
Zacchaeus' name means the righteous one. That's what Zacchaeus means. It means the righteous one. So essentially, you could also read this first verse. It says, Jesus enters Jericho, and behold, there was a man named Righteous. So your first thought is, okay, here's a good guy. He's well-respected. He's a prominent man in the community. I mean, his name is Righteous. He's probably um, someone who helps people find the Lord. He's, he's kind of the moral backbone of this community. But the very next detail tells us something different. That Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. Now when we think taxes, we immediately think the IRS, but don't think that. It's actually far worse than that. Tax collectors were employed by the Roman government. They were essentially employees of the heavy hand of Rome. And see, they had, they're, they're occupying Jerusalem. Jerusalem is not a sovereign state anymore. They are, they are occupied by the Roman government. And so what they would do is they would hire Jews to collect taxes from their own countrymen to finance the empire. An empire that big needs a lot of money. You know, if you go to, to Rome today and you see all the great things that were built, that wasn't free. How'd they get that money? By oppressing people. See, the Pax Romana is a big lie, like the peace of Rome. It was peaceful because people knew if they said anything, they would die. That's why it was so quiet. Rome would get their fixed amount. So Rome said, listen, every community has this amount of money that you have to bring in. Or else the tax collectors are going to pay the price. But they also told the tax collectors, listen, you're allowed to take as much extra on top as you think you can get. Now think about that. They do need to take some money, right? That's their job. That's their livelihood. So in some sense, a little bit more on top makes sense. Everybody's got to earn a buck. An honest living would have been understandable. But because of the sinful heart, we see an opportunity for more. We're greedy. And so tax collectors were notorious for taking far more than Rome demanded or a living required. And Zacchaeus has worked his way up. Not only is he a tax collector, but he's a chief tax collector. So it's like, it's the ancient world pyramid scheme. He's got all of these tax collectors underneath his authority who also pay money to him. You can kind of think of them like a mob boss. They essentially were running their own kind of Jewish mafia. And Zacchaeus had seized this opportunity to get rich by extortion. And therefore, he had become an oppressor of the heaviest kind. He had spent years exploiting his neighbors to get rich using whatever scare tactics necessary. We have historical accounts that tax collectors, especially chief tax collectors, would threaten people, they would beat people, and they would often murder people. It was a way for them to get what they wanted. Tax collectors were essentially thugs. And he's the chief tax collector for the city of Jericho. And as such, he would have been one of the most hated and really one of the worst human beings in the entire city. Tax collectors were so despised in this time, they were considered perpetually unclean. Now, any person could become unclean for certain things, and then there was a ritual that you would perform to become clean again so that you could enter into the religious culture of Judaism. But if you are perpetually unclean, what does that mean? It means you are unable to come close to God. So there's no synagogue for you on holy days, like the Passover that's coming up. Zacchaeus did not have his bags packed to go to Jerusalem to go to the temple. He is unclean. They're cut off from God. He was an oppressor of the worst kind. He was a soulless crime boss. His name should have been malicious, repugnant, odious, and yet his name is righteous. Do you see the irony? It's thick. Verse 3. And Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small in stature. Is anyone singing, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he? Okay, that's him. But don't let that nursery rhyme fool you. He is an oppressor of the worst kind. 
And as Zacchaeus makes his way, as, as Jesus rather makes his way into Jericho, Zacchaeus wants to see who he's all about. But the crowd is so large that Zacchaeus is unable to make his way through. He can't get to the front and he's short, which means he's at the back of the crowd. I know this life. I'm not a tall man. There, when a crowd is in front of me, I can't see either. But Luke's point isn't simply that he's short. See, if he was respected and loved, the crowd would have opened up. Hey, let Zacchaeus through so he can see as well. If he had lived up to his name as righteous, then, then he would have been up front. He would have been one of the prominent people. But he's not lived up to his name He's lived down to his stature and oppressed everyone around him. Zacchaeus' problem is not simply that he's short. His problem is that he's short and hated. And can you blame them? He's made their life miserable. And one of the consequences of his lifestyle is that Zacchaeus is a man who's on the fringe. He's rich. He's wealthy. But because of his extortion, he's lonely and despised. He's never welcomed by anyone. He's never invited into someone's home. And for the second time in our text, the crowd has blocked someone from being able to come near to Jesus. So far, we've seen Jesus come to the aid of the oppressed blind man who's pushed to the fringe, and it begs the question. If you're reading this uh, in, the, in the literary sense, you should be asking, what will happen to Zacchaeus? Will the crowd continue to be an obstacle for him? There's another man on the fringe. But this time he's on the fringe because of his own sin, his own hatred, his own oppression. And it begs the question, will Jesus seek him out? Will Jesus draw near to him? Verse 4. So Zacchaeus ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. Zacchaeus wants to see who Jesus is, and so he runs ahead of the crowd, and he climbs up in a sycamore tree. Now, sycamore trees have very large leaves. So the idea here is not only does he get a vantage point, but it's going to be camouflaged. He's, you're not going to be able to see him up there in the tree. See, what I want you to see here is he wants to see Jesus, but he wants to see Jesus on his own terms. He wants to size up Jesus. He wants to see what he's about, and he wants to do so from a hidden distance. Now, how many of you in this room this morning, if you're being honest, are doing the exact same thing? Looking at Jesus from your vantage point at a distance. And listen, that's fine if you are. Our stories all have their own details. But it's good to be honest and aware. If you're keeping Jesus at a distance, trying to see him on your own terms, it's at least good to be aware of your own motivations. Verse 5, when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So the gig is up. His hope of seeing Jesus hidden by the leaves up in the sycamore tree, those, 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 those hopes are shattered. He wanted his distance, but Jesus loves him too much to let him stay up there hiding in the tree. And the good news of the gospel, seven mile, is that Jesus loves us more than that too. No matter how we try to hide, no matter, no matter how we try to keep Jesus at a distance, he has a way of seeing us no matter where we try to hide. And Jesus calls this man to come down out of hiding. Now don't forget about that crowd. That crowd's very important in the story. Do you feel the tension of the crowd? Right? They've been following Jesus and Jesus stops again. And he tells this man to come down. And he calls him out. And as, as he comes out, it's like the big reveal. Like Zacchaeus comes out of the tree. And the whole crowd's wondering, oh, what's Jesus going to do with him? And they probably expect Jesus to publicly shame and rebuke him. Something like Jesus or Zacchaeus, you've, you've oppressed all these good people. You've taken more than you need. Zacchaeus, you have used fear and thuggery. To oppress these people to build a lifestyle of comfort and ease. How could you? How dare you betray your own people? Your mother and father gave you the name the righteous one. And look at what you've done. If Jesus had rebuked Zacchaeus like this. 
Jesus would have secured the favor of the people. They would have loved him for it. But what does Jesus do? Instead, he calls Zacchaeus to come down so that he can go to his house for dinner. This would have been the most unexpected thing for Jesus to do. It would have been completely out of line for a religious figure like Jesus to become the guest of a notorious sinner like him. Meals are a huge deal in Jewish culture. They're huge in the Gospel of Luke. You do not go into the home of sinners. And yet Jesus finds the biggest sinner in the entire city and says, I want to go to your house. Verse 6. So Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw, this is the crowd, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. I want you to see what's happening here. The crowd takes all of their hatred, all of their contempt for Zacchaeus, and what do they do with it? They transfer it on to Jesus. Do you see that? They start grumbling at him. How could he become the guest of a man who is a sinner? All that animosity they feel for Zacchaeus has shifted to Jesus. And Jesus has given up his favor with the crowd and put all of that favor on to Zacchaeus. It's a transfer. It's an exchange. Friends, it's the gospel. Jesus extends costly grace because it costs Jesus to give this grace to this oppressor. All the fanfare, all the excitement about Jesus has turned into grumbling. I mean, you can just hear it. Him? Jesus, do you know who he is? You're going to go to his house? Do you see this intentional pursuit again? Just in the same way that Jesus intentionally pursued the blind, oppressed man, Jesus pursues a blind oppressor. He won't let Zacchaeus stay in hiding. He won't let the crowd's expectations of him keep him from Zacchaeus. The crowd continuously gets in the way and Jesus pushes right through them. He pursues Zacchaeus. And not only that, the Bible tells us that Zacchaeus received Jesus joyfully. There was no time for him to go home and tidy up. No time for him to to sweep things under the rug. No time for him to get the money off the tables. No time to tell the other thugs, hey, clear out. He just goes to his house. There's something about this invitation that has started to work a change in Zacchaeus. I wonder, when was the last time Zacchaeus felt joy? When was the last time he felt something like that inside of him? And then something happens that's amazing at this dinner. Zacchaeus experiences the transforming power of the presence of Christ. We don't have a transcript of the dinner conversation. I wish we did. Well, we don't know what was said, but here's what we know. Something happens to change Zacchaeus during that meal as he experiences the transforming power of the presence of Jesus. And how do we know that? Well, it's what Luke tells us next, verse 8. This is after the meal. Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Do you see the change that's taking place? In his resolution to give back what he's stolen, he offers a confession of his own sin and evidence of a changed heart. Now listen to me. When he says, whatever I've stolen, I, I will restore it fourfold, he is going well beyond what he needs to do. There were actually laws written at this time that if tax collectors who had wrongfully defrauded people wanted to repent, here's how they would do it. If a tax collector accidentally took a tax where there shouldn't be, he was where to pay it one for one. So if it was an accident, he took a tax that wasn't supposed to be, he could make restitution by just giving it back one for one. If he took something that he claimed was a tax, but it wasn't, meaning he made it up, and he wanted to make restitution, the law required he paid it back two for one. And if it was proven in a court of law that the tax collector had outright stolen... He was to pay it back three for one. And obviously Zacchaeus knows all this. And he knows he's probably done all of these things. 
And he says, in order to make restitution, I will pay it back in a way that is above and beyond. First, I'll give half of what I have right now to the poor. And think about it. A lot of people are probably poor because of him. So he's making restitution with them. And of all, the, of, all of his defrauding and racketeering, he says, I will pay back fourfold. He's saying, I know I've stolen. I know I've hurt. I know I've oppressed people. And I have to try to make it right by providing some kind of restitution. Now, don't miss this. We are so conditioned by our society to think that we have to merit our worth to earn favor with God that you could misread what's going on here. You could think Zacchaeus is saying, Jesus, I want to be in with you. I want to uh, follow you. I want, I, I, want, I want to give my life to you. And so in order to gain your favor, I need to do all these things. It could be easy to read it that way. What Zacchaeus is doing is not a list of things he needed to do in order to be transformed to become a new man. That was not the pathway of his transformation. That is works-based salvation. That is saying, I earn my salvation. I do things in order to get this grace and salvation for God. What I want us to see is what Zacchaeus is doing here is evidence of a transformation that has already taken place. It's in those in-between verses that we don't have. It's in that dinner conversation that we don't know. But something has changed in him. He has been changed by costly love. Zacchaeus knew exactly what Jesus was doing when he invited himself to his house for dinner. Jesus, I mean, Zacchaeus understands what Jesus has done for him. He knows that Jesus has reached out to him in a radical and profound way. And something happened at that meal that changed his heart such that he was willing to give up all those things. Verse 9. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, for he also is a son of of Abraham. And then we have that purpose statement, that mission statement. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So Jesus affirms this change of heart and says this very day, this is evidence that salvation has come to his house. Jesus has pursued Zacchaeus. He's given him the gift of his presence. We've seen the redeeming power of the love of Jesus bring this lost son of Abraham home. He comes face to face with the love, truth, and beauty of Jesus. And now, everything he once held so dear, this money, this lifestyle, it's now, it pales in comparison to who, he, who he's met in Jesus. It so pales in comparison, he's ready to give away all of his wealth so that his hands and his very life are free to embrace Christ. See, when Jesus sees you for who you truly are, you start to rethink everything. You start to redefine everything in your life in light of who he is. When you see Jesus for who he truly is, everything that once was so precious and dear to you is found wanting compared to Christ. See, for the first time in his life, Zacchaeus is truly known and fully loved. And it changes him. And then the joy and generosity and the righting of wrongs starts to flow from his heart. You can almost hear Jesus say, Zacchaeus, you thought when you climbed up in that tree that you were trying to come and see, uh, seek me and to see me. But this whole time, Zacchaeus, I've been seeking you. I have come to seek and save the lost. And friends, this same Jesus who sought out Zacchaeus, he's the same one seeking us today. Do you see it now? Do you see that his mission to seek and save the lost comes with an intentional pursuit, a compassionate presence, and a redeeming power? In this story in Jericho with the blind man and Zacchaeus, you get this full picture of the entire mission of Jesus. On one hand, Jesus will seek and save the blind and the oppressed. And at the same time, Jesus seeks and saves blind oppressors. It's not one or the other. Jesus goes out and saves everyone 
who is lost. Listen to this from the book of, of Ecclesiastes. I'm super pumped. We're going to look at the book of Ecclesiastes uh, this fall. It's, a, it's the philosophical book in the Bible, and it aims to find the meaning of life. And in chapter 4, verse 1, as Solomon is looking at just the brokenness in the world, he says this. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, listen to this, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors, there was power. And the same thing, listen, no one to comfort them. Don't miss this. Solomon is saying, when I look out into the brokenness of the world, I see broken people, oppressed people, and there's no one to comfort them, no one to wipe their tears. But at the same time, there's a brokenness in the oppressors as well. And guess what? There's no one to comfort them. This world is broken. It's filled with the breakers and the broken. And there's no one to comfort them. How will this ever be righted? And what Solomon could, he sees the brokenness. But what he couldn't see, we see in Jesus. In this story, Jesus is the one who comforts both the oppressed and the oppressors. What's profound is not that Jesus seeks and saves the lost. What's profound is who is defined as the lost. We would probably all agree that the blind man was lost. But we would look at Zacchaeus and say, he's an oppressor. He should receive judgment. And and in one sense, he should. But Jesus says, they're both lost. And I have come to seek and save the lost. Jesus will seek out the downcast. He will seek out the one who can't contribute anything to society. And here's the beauty and mystery of the grace of God. He also seeks out the ones who try to tear apart the very fabric of the world that he created. And this gets at the very heart of the Bible. Everyone, no matter who they are, is both lost and needs Jesus and in some sense feels the oppression of living in a broken and simple world. And at the same time, every one of us, in some form or fashion, have become oppressors. And, and both of those needs are perfectly met in Jesus. None of us here today are in less need of that transforming pursuit and presence and power of Jesus than the blind man and Zacchaeus. And that's the point of this passage. When you read it, you are supposed to say... I am the blind man and I am Zacchaeus. We're both. We're just like them. Everyone here has been oppressed in some shape or or, or form. And if you live long enough, it's just the reality. Someone will wrong you. Someone will hurt you. Someone will take advantage of you to the point where you feel the oppression and brokenness of sin. And you will cry. And you will have tears that need comforting. And at the same time, we have all been oppressors. We have wronged people. We have taken advantage. We have made others cry. We are oppressed and at the same time, we are oppressors. And both in our brokenness and in our breaking, we need Jesus. No matter where you find yourself this morning, on that spectrum of the blind man and Zacchaeus, the point is this. We're all lost. We're all broken. And the good news is that Jesus seeks and saves the lost. As we close up this morning, I want to ask some questions to help try to apply this passage to our lives. If, you, if you're taking notes, you could write these down to think on through the week. In both of these stories, these men came face to face with Jesus and they were different as a result of it. What would be different about you if you came face to face with Jesus? I don't mean what would you do different. We'll, you get to that later. I mean what would be different in you? What would change in your heart? Also, for those here this morning who are seeking to get a look at Jesus but are still hiding, keeping him at a distance, my question for you is, what's keeping you from coming down out of that tree this morning. The transformation that happened to the blind man in Zacchaeus is still available because Jesus is still seeking and saving the lost. 
for those who are following Jesus this morning, it's good to be reminded of that transforming power of Jesus and to realize that we are works in progress. So what parts of your life still need that transforming power of Jesus' life? Where are you broken? Where do you need to cry out for mercy? Where are you, where have you and where are you maybe oppressing people? Where you need to repent of it and make restitution. And let's not overlook the implication of a text where we see the mission of Jesus so clearly. For those who are following Jesus this morning, we are also invited to follow him on that same mission. Who are the oppressed, who are the oppressors in your community that you can move toward with that same kind of pursuit and presence and power of the love of Christ? Write those names down. Begin to pray for them. And pray that God would give you opportunity to extend, extend the same kind of grace to them. And then one final point of application. This story is, a, is one example where we see the mission of Jesus. But I would like to argue that you would see this all over the Gospels. Everywhere where you see Jesus go, he's intentionally pursuing people. He gives them compassionate uh, presence. And there's also this redeeming power. It's all over the Gospels. And as we dedicate the summer to studying through these portraits of Jesus, what if we read through the Gospels as a church family this summer, paying close attention to the mission of Jesus? There's roughly 80 days left in summer. So we still, we've, we've, got, we've done about 10 of them, right? So we've got 80 more days. If you were to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John from start to finish, it would take you roughly 10 hours. Now the fast readers in here can do it in about seven and a half but I, but I, you know, did the, the, the curve for everybody. So it's about 10 hours, okay? And that means with 80 days left in summer, eight, hour, eight minutes a day, eight minutes a day, you can easily read through all four Gospels this summer. And that's, again, that's even exaggerated. Really, it's like six and a half minutes a day. But I just, I jumped up. If you just give yourself eight minutes a day, we can all read through the Gospels together. And we can spend time saturating and rejoicing in the reality that Jesus seeks and saves the lost. Let's pray.